All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John 17. We're going to begin in verse 20. John 17, verse 20. says, I do not ask for these only. Jesus has just prayed for his disciples. I do not ask for these, my disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this prayer of our Savior, of our Lord, the, the one who has died for us, Lord, we read Him praying for us. Lord, this is amazing. To see the words of the Son of God, fully God, fully man, praying for us. As we think this morning about what it means to be one, about what it means to live in community with the saints, with one another, God, I pray that we would get what Jesus has prayed for us. I pray that we would understand what it means to be one. And God, that we would stop trying to find community in social networks, online communities, quote, communities. But that we would seek true gospel-centered community among real people with whom we have real contact in the church. Father, let this church be a gospel-centered community. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our mission statement at Redeemer Church says, Our mission at Redeemer Church is to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. But notice the two sort of pillars in that mission statement. Redemptive communities, gospel-centered people. Community, gospel. There's been a tendency in our, in our day, uh, especially over the past 50 years probably, more so than ever, of churches getting these two things really out of balance. In other words, they tend, most churches tend to emphasize one thing over the other. So you have community and you have truth or doctrine or theology, whatever you want to call it, gospel, if you will. So there are some churches that emphasize community to the neglect of biblical fidelity or truth. So they would hold really some things in error in their central belief system, but they would emphasize the need for other people, community, sort of um, social uh, aspects of ministry. So I'm thinking specifically of the emerging church. If you're familiar with the emerging church and kind of that whole movement, which is not really defined, uh, but there's this real emphasis towards community, right? They're all about sort of loving one another and 
and locking arms and doing things for the community at large and the community of faith. And this, they throw this word community out all the time. But when you get down to what they actually believe about Jesus, the gospel, how, it, how you come to know Christ, um, what it means to be a Christian, uh, what they believe about scripture, you find that they're wishy-washy, right? So they emphasize community to the neglect of biblical truth. Then you have some churches, and I find myself in this camp uh, more often than not. If I err, which of course I don't, but <laughs> if, I, if I did err, um, I, I err on the other side. I, we, we tend to emphasize truth or biblical fidelity or theology, however you want to call it, to the neglect of community. And in fact, this is the kind of church that I grew up in. Um, the church I grew up in was a small Southern Baptist church. Southern Baptists are they are serious about you know, what we believe, right? The, the, the articles of the faith, what, what it is we hold dear, justification by faith alone, uh, baptism, Lord's Supper, these things. Even if, and this is my church that I grew up in, we, we were actually in error on some things. Like, we didn't really, now that looking back on it, my church, from my opinion now, we didn't really believe some things that were correct. However, we still held those things. We emphasized truth and doctrine to the neglect of community. Because I remember growing up in a church, and I'm sure many of us would have the same experience, growing up in church, and I only saw most of the people in my church on Sunday mornings. A few of them I saw Sunday night, and even fewer Wednesday night, right? The only time you see people in your church is when you're at church. That is not gospel-centered community. Amen. And that is not what we're striving for at Redeemer Church. Um, so, that's the tendency, right? This is something we have to fight in ourselves, individually, and something we have to fight in our church, we have to maintain a healthy balance of community and truth, or gospel and community. And in fact, I'm going to go a step further and say that these two things are not mutually exclusive. Amen. So to even speak of them as though that it's possible to emphasize one and not the other is really to set yourself up for failure. Because to emphasize one to the neglect of the other, you're actually showing a deficiency in both. That's right. If you're neglecting community, or I'm sorry, emphasizing community and neglecting truth, you don't have true community. Right. If you're emphasizing truth to the neglect of community, something is missing from your doctrine or from your truth. Does that make sense? So, we have to maintain a healthy balance, but we do that by realizing these things go hand in hand. Okay? So that's sort of the context. That is why this is one of our core values. Community. It is essential. Not only is it essential, it is, it is really the foundation of what it means to be the church. And we're going to see that today. So... We reject this dichotomy. We believe it's not only possible but necessary to maintain a healthy balance of the unashamed proclamation of the truth and Christ-centered community. You cannot have one without the other. So, how do we do this? Right? I mean, what is gospel-centered community? We have to define this stuff. Well, we have to. What we just read was John 17. So when we think about community, we have to ask the question, what is God's design? What has been God's design for people from really creation? And really it goes farther back than creation. So what I'm going to suggest is that God's design for people has always been community. In fact, it's part of who God is. In John 17, we just read the high priestly prayer, right? A portion of the high priestly prayer. What does Jesus say? He says a lot, and we could unpack tons of stuff here, but I want to focus really on verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, 
whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So here's Jesus. He's living. He's a, he's a real human being, right? In time and space. He's the Son of God and he's praying to the Father who is in heaven. Okay? And he says that you, Father, I pray that you would give them the love that you have loved me with from before the foundation of the world. So right here we have a picture of what we believe as a church to be a picture of the Trinitarian, the triune nature of God. Because you see, we believe here in Redeemer, at Redeemer in the Trinity. This is a core central doctrine of our church. We believe that God exists in three persons. These three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, and equal in power and glory. So here, Jesus says, Father, before the foundation of the world, we existed, you and me. And I could go to other places and to show Genesis you know, 1, 2, that the Spirit is right there with them. So if you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit before the foundation of the world, and Jesus said that there is a love that existed between the Father and the Son. The foundation of our community exists in the nature of God Himself. Because you have diversity, or you have unity among diversity. Father, Son, Spirit, all distinct persons of the Godhead, yet one God. So you have unity among diversity. If we don't get that, nothing else we're going to see today is going to make any sense. If you don't understand, I'm going to say if you don't understand the Trinity, um, nobody understands the Trinity completely, but if you don't have a basic understanding, a foundation of the, uh, of the knowledge of the Trinity, then this idea of unity among diversity will make no sense. We have to understand that this idea of community exists in the actual nature of God. And in fact, if this is the case, and I'm going to say that it is, then we should see evidence of this in creation, should we not? If God has created all things, then we should see at least some sort of mirroring or image of unity among diversity in the things that he has made. So I'm just going to ask. Do we see it? Absolutely. It's everywhere, right? You think of any living thing. I mean, just our, our bodies. What do we have in our bodies? All kinds of different parts and organs and things going on, yet we have one body. What do we have in uh, any ecosystem? All kinds, hundreds, thousands of different plants and animals and and insects and bacteria and molecules all doing their own thing yet working together. So we see everywhere that we look this idea of unity among diversity. And I'm saying that it's because this is rooted in God's very nature. So, what do we see in Scripture though? Okay, Caleb, we get this. It's a part of God's nature. You haven't really shown us anything in the Bible yet as far as how this works out. So, take Adam and Eve. We're just going to trace this idea, unity and diversity, throughout Scripture. Just real quick. Adam and Eve. God creates Adam, right? One man. Well, that's not diversity. What does he say to Adam? Before the fall, he says, it's not good for you to what? To be alone. It's not good for you. He's just said, I made this, 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 this. It's good, it's good, it's good. Everything's good. It's not good, though, that you're alone. So what does he do? He creates Eve. Eve is like Adam, but not just like Adam. He makes a helper fit for him. So even in the very makeup, the, the physical anatomy of a man and a woman, you have unity and diversity. Difference, yet one. And that's, that's imaged in marriage, in relationships. So Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fall. God destroys the world with a flood. He saves who? Just Noah? Noah and his family. 
multiple people. Noah's family. And then what, what's the command that God gives them? The same command that he gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. In other, world, in other words, he wants a world populated with people. God has always been interested in a people. Right? Not just people, individuals, but creating a people for himself. Noah has lots of kids. They descend, descend, descend. Along comes Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham. What is the promise that God gives to Abraham? I'll make you a father of many nations. Community. God's interested in a people, right? He says, when your people return to this land, in 400 years, they're going to be mine. God's interested in creating a people for himself. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, God changes his name to Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And they become God's chosen people. God chooses a people for himself. We've seen this all the way back in Adam and Eve. God wants a people. He's interested in a people, a group of people for himself. Israel is meant to be a light to the nations, right? Exodus 19.6, this idea of uh, being a kingdom of priests. God says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests uh, so that other nations would see the true, the one true God. I'm going to set you apart so the nations would see the one true God through you. And they would come and they would join the Israelites in worshiping the one true God. So God's interested in choosing a people for himself setting them apart from the world so that they would see, the world would see them worshiping the one true God. And they would say, I want that. And they go and they join with Israel, right? That was the goal. Israel failed miserably in that goal. Moses. Right? Moses. Israel is in captivity in Egypt, or the the, the Jews, uh, the Hebrews, I guess they were called then, um, are in captivity. Moses comes. Calls them out, um, leads them out of. Did I say Israel? They're in captivity in Israel. They're in captivity in Egypt. I don't know if I said Israel. They're in captivity in Egypt. Moses comes, calls them out. God saves the people. They're at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. God makes a covenant with them. They're His people now. Okay. So God leads them through the wilderness to the Promised Land. The whole story of the Exodus. It's all about God saving His people, His group, the ones that He has chosen. Hundreds of years go by, the Davidic kingdom, the rebuilding of the temple, along comes Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, and what is Jesus interested in? He calls 12 disciples. He says, you will be the foundation for what? The church. And as we will see in a little bit, that how, how that has worked itself out in the New Testament. And so, you see this, this idea of community traced from the creation, in fact it goes to the, from the nature of God, into creation, throughout the history of Israel, into the New Testament, all the way up into our modern day in the church. God has always been interested in a people. He's not just interested in you. He's interested in you to the degree that you are a part of His people. And that is huge. John Stott puts it this way. The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For His purpose, conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected for a future eternity, is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build His church, that is, to call out of the world a people for His own possession. Man, we, our individualism is so ingrained. I mean, even the communities that we claim to be a part of are not communities because they're centered around us. The social network, right? This movie just came out. I haven't seen it. I really don't know what 
what goes on in the movie. I think it's about Facebook or this, who started Facebook or whatever. But just think about Facebook. We're probably all on Facebook. But what is Facebook? It's called a social network or an online community, right? What do you do when you get on Facebook? You log into your account and you just see what's going on with the people that you have let in to your community. You block the people. I block people all the time. <laughs> if you're not blocked, you're one of the lucky ones. Um, no, if you put up like quizzes and surveys, you're getting blocked as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, um, all Facebook is is a, it, it's a pseudo community where we have decided who we're going to let into our pseudo lives. That's what Facebook is. What you see on Facebook is not real. The things people post on Facebook are what they want to be perceived about themselves, right? I mean, most of the time. If you put something on Facebook, what you're saying is, this is what I want people to know about me right now. So, I'm going to put something super spiritual, like a scripture verse. <laughs> For God so loved the world, and um, people are going to, and, and then you start liking people. Oh, so and so liked that. I didn't know they were a Christian. They must be a Christian. You have no idea if they're a Christian. You don't even know that person. But the point is, it's a pseudo, it's a false community. This is not community. Um, and that's just one. We could, we could go on and on, right? Social clubs, um, being a part of, uh, you know, just even your friends, classmates, these, this, this idea that the world tells us, this false community, this false idea of community that's fed to us by the world is really an attempt to use people for our own benefit most of the time. Because really, it's all about me. It's about looking out for number one, and the communities that I choose to be a part of, if they don't benefit me, however I want to be benefited, then I could just come and go and come and go and decide where I want to be, right? That is the opposite of what the church is. The church, as we will see, is not something you decide to be a part of. And the church is not something that you let other people join you in. In other words, we don't just stand at the door and as people come to the door we say, no, not you, not you, not you, no. God decides who will be in his church. In fact, God's decided it from before the foundation of the world. And so what we do is we proclaim the gospel and God gathers his people gathers his church see we don't have a say we just wait on God your inclusion and active involvement in the community of faith is not an option the idea of a, of a Christian of a person being a Christian apart from from the church is a foreign concept to the New Testament. To reject the body of Christ is to reject Christ. So we're talking about community. We're talking about being involved in community. You might be sitting there thinking, the church is really just another, um, another thing that I have to juggle in my life. And I can really take it or leave it. That's really a lot of times how we view the church. That's how I view the church a lot of times. So in other words, like the center of my life is me, and the spokes of my life are, you know, we have school is one spoke, job is one spoke, family, uh, my boyfriend or girlfriend or wife, whatever it is, um, kids. So we have all these spokes coming out, but we are really the center, right? Everything spins around us, and so what we do is we just play this juggling game where, you know, we just go from one hat to the other, and we play dad, and we play student, and play uh, church member. And church is just another thing out here that we have to juggle. 
But I hope today that from Scripture that we're about to get into, we will see that at the center of our universe is not merely us. Now, in one sense, that is how we have to operate, right? I mean, we're individuals. We have to sort of work these things out. But I want to suggest that we need a paradigm shift. In other words, the church is actually where we find our, our identity as Christians. And a Christian who doesn't find his or her identity within the community of faith is not a Christian. Amen. So, the church should not be thought of as another hat you wear, another thing you have to juggle in your life. It's part of your identity. Work, school, recreation, relationships, money, etc. are all to be done with regard to the church. Christians find their identity in the church. So, where am I getting this? We saw in John 17, communities rooted in the nature, the triune nature of God. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 and see what is the foundation or what is the nature of community. Acts chapter 2, we're not going to read the whole chapter, we're just going to do kind of a brief overview of what's going on here in, in the church. Chapter 2 of Acts says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. Who's they? Basically the disciples, right? And, and a bunch of other people, but they're basically the, the disciples. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mightier rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And this sound, at, at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parth Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Verse 14, Peter starts preaching, right? This is Peter, the same Peter who denied Christ. He is now, the Spirit has just fallen on the disciples. This has never happened before. The Spirit has now come on the disciples. Peter's filled with the Spirit. And what's he do? He preaches for the next, I don't know, 30 verses or something. Skip down to verse 42. After Peter's sermon, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is the, I think, foundation, foundational picture of gospel-centered community. And what I see is the foundation of that is the Word and the Spirit. A few weeks ago I preached on the pro on proclamation, right? Proclamation is another one of our core values. My main point in that message was to say that proclamation is necessary, it's absolutely essential to the core of a church because no one comes to faith without the ministry of the Word, the proclamation, the Word of God going out, and the Spirit of God making that Word active and living. The creation of the church in Acts 2 
it may not be the, the right word, but you know what I'm saying. The church is essentially born at Pentecost. The creation of the church here in Acts 2 is the same thing. Just as God called light out of darkness by the Spirit and the Word, God calls His church. He begins to build His church through the ministry of the Word and the Spirit. The Spirit falls at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 on the disciples. What does Peter immediately do? Proclaims the gospel. Immediately. And what happens? God gathers his church. The Spirit hovers over the disciples. The word of God goes out. And those whom God has chosen, he brings to himself. And he gathers his church. The foundation, the central core of our community is word and spirit. We cannot have community without the word of God and the spirit of God. By the word... Jesus rules. What do I mean by that? When we sit here on Sunday mornings or in our community groups or wherever and we sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word, what we are doing is we are submitting ourselves to God's rule, to the rule of Christ. Jesus rules his church through his word. We submit to God's word. We Uh, We change our lives. We change the way we think based on what we see in God's Word. By God's Spirit, God's Spirit is the one who enlightens our understanding so that we can understand God's Word. Because the natural man, Scripture tells us, does not submit to God's law. You can't, and if you're in the flesh, you cannot submit to God's law. You don't understand the things of God, but the Spirit gives us understanding. So word and spirit, word and spirit, you're going to see that all throughout the New Testament. When it comes to God, uh, the community of faith, it's founded on or grounded in the word, the ministry of the word and the ministry of the spirit. Um, This book, Total Church, nothing I'm saying today is new. It's all in here, along with in here. So um, it's... Uh, I'm going to quote from Total Church right now. It says uh, on page 29, The church is the community of the Holy Spirit. It is a living community where things happen because God is at work. When our hearts are moved in worship, when people are changed by God's word, when we turn to God in prayer, when we care for one another, when we act in selfless ways, and supremely when people are saved, all these are signs of the Spirit at work. Paul says that in Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This is not some theoretical entity, nor the perfected church. This is a real, local congregation with all sorts of problems. The community formed by the gospel, for the gospel, is the community in which God dwells by His Spirit. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. It's hard to... One of the the most difficult things about preaching through our core values is they're so foundational to the church and they're so huge, it's hard to just preach from one text. And so um, I hope you don't think that we're sort of, like me especially, it seems like both, both times I've preached on this, I've been, just been jumping all around. But I hope that you see that these ideas that are being brought out are not taken out of context. It's just, you know, community. I mean, community. <laughs> it's all over Scripture. Where do you go to get everything? So I'm just trying to hit, like, the most basic foundational points here. So, anyway, just, just a side note. Don't, don't think that skipping around is, is normal. I don't think it, it is, is the normal way we will preach and teach here. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, says this. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see that? Preaching, the proclamation of the word, and now access in one spirit. Spirit and word right there. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Tons of stuff there, but we've got to get what Paul's talking about first. He starts with, remember that you were at one time Gentiles in the flesh. Okay, so he's preaching to Jews and Gentiles. The church at Ephesus was probably made up of both Jews and Gentiles. He says, remember, you Gentiles that are out there, remember that you were at one time Gentiles in the flesh. In fact, you were called the uncircumcision. You were actually referred to by the Jews as those who are uncircumcised. The uncircumcised. That was a very... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A derogatory term uh, that the Jews called the Gentiles. The uncircumcised. Sort of the, the lesser, you know. They, they're not God's chosen people. <laughs> We're chosen, right? N not chosen. Uncircumcised. You were once called the uncircumcised. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul kind of throws that in there. Oh yeah, and those who called you the uncircumcision, they were circumcised, but all that is is something that's done in the flesh by human hands. So it's not really, they had really no basis for calling you that. But that's sort of a side note. Verse 12, remember, he goes back, okay, okay, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. What's he mean by that time? The Old Testament. He's referring to the Old Testament before Christ, the Gentiles, which is everyone who were not Jews, everyone who was not an Israelite was a Gentile. You were separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Gentiles, since they were not part of God's chosen people, were alienated from God. There was a sense in which they were cut off from God. Now, they could have noticed the one true God and saw Israel worshiping and come and join them. And that did happen. But by and large, the Gentiles in the Old Testament were left alone. God dealt primarily with his own people, with his chosen people. And Paul says, remember that, Gentiles? Remember that? Before Christ came, that you were alienated, you were far off, you were without God, you had no hope. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. What does he mean by he is our peace? He means that there, you know, if you have peace... There's a ceasing of warfare. That's really what that word means. It means that there's no longer hostility. In fact, that's what he says. He himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do this? By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So what Paul is saying, is that the Gentiles who were once far off have now been brought near. How has this happened? It's happened because Christ has come. 
Christ has died a substitutionary, a sacrificial atonement, uh, the death on the cross. And because of that death on the cross, he has killed the wall of hostility that was there in the Old Testament. What he means is the covenant or the ordinances and commandments that God had established with Israel. Because remember what God has, had, did in the Old Testament. He gathered his people, the Israelites, and he gave them his law, his ordinances, and this whole sacrificial ritualistic system. And he did that to separate them from the rest of the world. So that whole system was a way of dividing them off, separating them off from the rest of the world. But when Christ came and died on the cross, he abolished that system so that that sacrificial system of commandments and ordinances is no longer necessary because now Jews and Gentiles can come and become part of the same family. And in fact, that's exactly what has happened. Christ has created one new man. Remember at the beginning of the, of the message? Think of our bodies. All these different systems and parts. We are the body of Christ. Jews and Gentiles, Paul says. So, he goes on. We could just continue to un unpack this. Uh, he reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. It's destroyed. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. We all have access through the spirit of God to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what is the point of all of this? If Paul is saying this in his time so that Jews and Gentiles can understand that they have now one access, one spirit to the Father, or access through the Spirit to the Father. Jews and Gentiles can now become one. Okay? I don't know if there's any Jews in here today. If there are, then this has great direct application to you. Because the rest of us are probably Gentiles. We're probably all Gentiles. So... What do we do with this passage? You're like, Caleb, there's no Jews here. We're all Gentiles. Let's just pack up and go home. So this doesn't really apply to us, right? Well, it does. Because think about... I feel like I've been talking 100 miles a minute here. Think about all of the dividing walls that we erect. Think about all of the things that, we, that the world tells us are important and define us. I mean, think about just those of us in this room. Think about Facebook. What do you do on Facebook when somebody posts something that you like? You like it, right? You click like. I like that. If I don't like it, I don't click like. What do you do when you meet somebody? Even those of us in this room, what do you do when you meet somebody? You start asking them questions. What do you do? What do you like? What books do you like to read? What movies do you like to watch? These are the things that we think unify us. These are the things that we find to be common interests, which is okay, but for far too many of us, this is all we know of one another. I know Brett likes. I don't know. What does Brett like? <laughs> I know Brett likes Rachel. Um, I mean, I know things about Brett, what he likes and doesn't like. And I find common interests there. But that doesn't mean I know Brett. That's not community. Because we're not finding our unity, our community, our common faith in the death of Christ. If that's not foundational, there is no community. If all we know of one another are super, is superficial information, we are not having community. 
This is why we stress so much that you get involved in a community group. That's why we call them community groups. Because honestly, let's be honest, unless we're going to be here for like 12 hours on a Sunday morning, we just can't talk to everyone and get into everyone's life and do all that. So we have community groups that meet and we get into people's lives and we talk, we discuss things in a more intimate manner. Then we have life transformation groups where that happens at an even more personal, deep level. Very, you know, accountability center. Like, what are you looking at on, online? What are you watching? Uh, what are you doing when you're alone with so-and-so? All of that stuff. We get into the nitty-gritty things of life because that is where community happens. Man, we f- have fooled ourselves. The church has fooled itself for so many years thinking that getting together and singing some songs on Sunday morning and hearing a message is somehow community. That's not community. It's good. It's necessary. It's not community. It's, it's, a, it's a display of a type of community, a gospel-centered community, but that's not, if that's all we do, guys, we are missing. We are missing the boat. That's not community. Gospel-centered community is found, founded upon the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the Spirit whereby we find our common unity in Christ. It's not just hanging out. It's word-centered, spirit-centered, where we receive spiritual blessings from one another or from the spirit through others. Does that make sense? I hope that this is making sense and sort of... I mean, I hope that you see that community for a Christian is not an option. So, anyway... The life source of community. Is that the next point? Okay, yeah. The life source of community is the gospel. That's the whole point of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. The gospel. If the gospel isn't central to our community, we have no community. What is the gospel? Christ coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, calling a people to himself through the Spirit, and gathering his His People redeeming them, gathering them together so that they would become the church. That's the gospel. If that is not central to our community, then we have no community. So, droid. The cross is the glue that holds us together. If the cross isn't what holds us together, then our community will be shown for what it is, which is false community. What do I mean by that? It means that if... If I don't love Chet, if my love for Chet is based on the fact that we both really like to read the same books and listen to the same pastors and like the same kinds of music, if those are the things that bind us together, then the minute he starts liking Joel Osteen's book, I will cease, he will cease to be like important to me, right? I mean, all of a sudden, because the minute, I mean, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should use like a more. Uh... Okay, so let's say I don't like Francis Chan's book. I've never, I've never read a, a book by Francis Chan. But if Chet likes a Francis Chan book and I don't, then I'm going to be like, what a, what a moron, right? Like all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Book of Eli. Book of Eli. Oh man, <laughs> let's not even go there. <laughs> See me afterwards. If you're confused. Oh, man. Okay. So the point is, if we find our commonality, ultimately, we're going to have commonalities, right? Everybody knows that we're things in common. But if our commonality and our unity with one another is in the things that this world tells us is important, the things we like or dislike, or even personality traits, or the fact that we're in the same age range. If those are the things that bind us together, then the minute one of those things changes, we're gone. We see this in churches all the time. People go to a church, they search for a church, and they find one they're comfortable in, where their kids can be comfortable in, where they like the preaching or the music style. But the minute one of those things changes, they're gone. That's not community. That's not the gospel. That's prostitution. 
just use the church. Just, you know, I'll give them some money. Even. I'll give them some money as long as they keep me happy. But the minute the routine changes, the minute the pleasure is gone, I'm out of here. It's not rooted in the gospel. If our community is not rooted in the gospel, it will fail. This church will fail. So, what's this look like? What does this mean for us, right? It means a million different things. I've got four. Um, This means community is not an option. Um, The New Testament, well, a Christian apart from the church is a foreign concept to the New Testament. I'll just put it that way. If you call yourself a Christian and you are not joined with a church, publicly identifying yourself with a local congregation, if you are actively resisting that, you are claiming by your life that you are not a Christian. Okay? For a Christian to not be part of a local congregation is to reject the body of Christ. If you reject the body of Christ, you reject in Christ. Community is not an option. So, if that's true, I don't just mean superficial community. I mean real, gospel-centered community. If you are not to join together with a local body of believers, I'm not saying it has to be Redeemer. We'd love to have you. It would be awesome. But you need to find a local congregation of gospel-centered people and get involved. It's not an option. Community is going to be uncomfortable. Let's just be honest, right? If we're going to take this seriously, which I hope we are, it's going to get uncomfortable. (laughs) I mean, no one likes people probing in their lives. Like, what are you looking at? What are, you you know, I heard you say this about so-and-so the other day. You know, that's your brother in Christ you're talking about. You should not be speaking that way. These are things that... This is discipleship, right? This is getting to the nitty-gritty of what's going on in our lives. Nobody likes that, but that's what has to happen. It's going to be uncomfortable. You've got to count the cost, right? Is this what you're willing to, willing to do? Community is going to be uncomfortable. Your involvement in the church will only be as productive as you make it. In other words, you can do what I did for the first 17 years of my life, which is go to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and fake my way and somehow convincing people that I was a Christian. You could do that here. You could. Probably. Hopefully we would spot that pretty quick. But theoretically, you could probably fake your way through Redeemer Church if you, if you really wanted to. You could show up to community groups. You could say all the things that you know we want to hear. But community... Uh, Your involvement in the church will only be as productive as you make it. So if you're just going to fake your way through it, then you will receive no spiritual benefit. What we're about at Redeemer Church is real, authentic community where we're open with one another, honest with one another. We get down to the struggles of daily life and we just, you know, we're honest. The last thing I have is community should be outwardly focused. You know, almost everything that I've said today, I just realized, has been about us, right? The community of faith, and that's good. True community, gospel-centered, word, spirit, cross, all these things are central. However, we must always remember that community is not merely us-focused. Community is always outwardly focused. What I, what I mean by that is, if we're going to have true community, we must be proclaimers of the gospel. Because how does God build his community? By the word going out, and the spirit meeting the word, and drawing other people into the community of faith. So the minute our community becomes us-focused, and us-centered, 
will fail. Right? The church will fail. We'll either, I mean, we'll either all die and the church will just end, or it'll, it'll just kill itself from the inside out because we're not outwardly focused. We must always be outwardly focused. True community means that we are interested in the lost. Because we know that what we have here is so rich and so powerful. Why would we not want others to be included? And so true community is outwardly focused. I hope that makes sense. So, I know there was a lot there. And uh, I probably should not have done all of that. But uh, <laughs> you're like, man... Maybe I didn't really say anything, but may, to me, I was like, I feel like I'm talking a mile a minute. But uh, um, anyway, the whole point of the message is community is essential. And I pray, I hope and I pray that you are here today, right now, sitting in that seat, thinking, how can I get involved? I want community. Because when you look at Facebook and when you look at the people that are your, quote, friends, what is everybody longing for? I mean, it's a false community, but it's a picture. It's a pointer. We should be able to look at that and say, those people, everyone on Facebook who is there, what they are longing for, the ultimate goal and reality of this false community is the church. That's what they're longing for. That's what everybody is longing for. They're longing for a church. They don't know it. They would never admit it. But if you try to find your identity in any other community or social club or whatever, what you're really longing for is the church. Unity among diversity. People from every tribe, tongue, and language. Every social class. Uh, every um, Every skin color, uh, every uh, male and female, um, the 50-year-olds and the 5-year-olds, we all need each other. All of those barriers, social barriers, are demolished, destroyed in Christ. He is our foundation. He is our hope. He is our one common faith. Do you know Him? Do you know Christ? Or is all of, does all this just not make any sense to you? If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Might be because I'm a, not a very good communicator. But if the reason you don't know what I'm talking about is because you've never experienced spiritual transformation, then know today that Christ is preaching peace to you. You who were once far off, are now being brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ has died on the cross so that those who would have faith in Him would be brought in to His community. And that's available today. So I encourage you to talk to someone. I encourage you to find someone. If, if you're sitting there and you know that, that this, is, this does not describe you, that you have yet to, to be brought into the community of faith, man, talk to someone and, and know that the gospel is true and the gospel is reaching out for you. Let's pray. Father, your word is um, so convicting. Lord, I, I fear that there are many here today who realize that they have been playing church. I fear that there are many here who are honestly scared to death right now because they're thinking about what it would be like for someone to really ask them what's going on in their lives. Lord, that scares us to death because I'm about to be found out all of this spiritual facade is about to be unraveled 
And people are going to know that I don't have it together, that I'm a sinner. People are going to know the things I've been dealing with. God, I pray that you would break down that wall of fear. God, that we would be united now in our understanding of the fact that we are all sinners. We are all sick and dirty and disgusting. And that you are infinitely holy. But through Christ and only through Christ, we have fellowship with one another and with you. And I pray, God, that that would be our one common faith. That the church's one foundation would be Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. God, these are such great, glorious truths. We haven't even scratched the surface. God, I pray that this church would plumb the depths of community. That we would see, God, that we would see the, uh, the glory of God revealed in unity among diversity. Father, change us. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.